Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis. I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm also the vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. And I'm Leanne Castle, a respiratory physician at Barts Hospital in London. This is part of our regular podcast series where we have informal chats with experts in their field and tackle the most important issues that we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. It is important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of anything discussed in these podcasts. We would love to hear your questions and comments on things we've discussed in this podcast. Please contact us uh, by emailing us at uh, info at btog.org or tweet us at btog.org. Please review and like us on the platform where you access your podcast to help us spread the word about BTOG educational events. Today's podcast is about metastatic advanced stage neuroendocrine uh, tumours, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Debs Shaka. Debs, welcome to the BTOG podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Uh, first of all, before we kick off, tell us about you, where do you work and what do you do? Sure. So I'm a well, I'm a bit of an interloper because I'm a, uh, an HPB medical oncologist uh, with a specific specialization in neuroendocrine tumors. I'm based at uh, Guy's and King's College Hospital. Um, we have a, 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 a ENETS, which is the European Neuroendocrine Tumor Society of Excellence, um, center of excellence uh, across Guy's and King's. Um, I'm also uh, a, a genomics lead at uh, Southeast uh, Genomics Laboratory Hub, and I also do quite a lot of early phase clinical trials as well. So I wear a number of different hats. A number of expert hats. And of course, um, we recognize the importance of neuroendocrine tumors for us as thoracic oncology uh, teams. Uh, but um, we welcome all members to our BTOG podcast. So you're very welcome. Thank you. Brilliant. And so just to kind of kick us off, it's a, it's a, a big topic, but could you just start by talking to us about the spectrum of neuroendocrine tumours, because it covers quite a broad, uh, different group of tumours with several different subtypes. Um, and perhaps if you could enlighten us all just about those different subtypes and how they differ. Sure. So as you say, um, neuroendocrine tumours of the lung are a spectrum. Um so on one end of the spectrum, you have the well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumours, which are the typical and atypical lung carcinoids. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the more poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas, which are the large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma and small cell. Um, so typical and atypical carcinoids are what I treat. Um, and um, clearly there are... Um, uh, differences in terms of who looks after these patients from an oncological perspective. Many are looked after by lung oncologists such as Tom, and many are looked after by neuroendocrine specific specialists like myself. Uh, but yeah, as you say, they're a spectrum. Um, the well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumours, as I said, that I look after, um, the two main types, as I said, are the typical and atypical carcinoids. Um, the main way that they are differentiated is histopathologically. 
Um, so the, the key things that your lung or neuroendocrine specialist pathologist should be able to tell you is the number of mitoses per 10 high power fields uh, and also whether there's the presence of any necrosis. So for typical carcinoids, you um, the diagnosis is made based on less than two mitoses per 10 high power fields. Uh, for an atypical carcinoid, it's between two to 10 or the presence of uh, focal necrosis. On the other end of the spectrum, as I said, neuroendocrine carcinomas such as large cell and small cell are very morphologically very different and obviously associated with much uh, higher mitotic rate. Um, the other um, key thing that um, is not uh, specifically mandated when biopathologists, for example, in the WHO classification of which there was a, a further iteration last year, is the use of CARA 67 as a proliferation index. So we use this routinely for gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors, but um, it's not mandated for lung, but increasingly we are using it just because of the kind of diagnostic and prognostic value associated with this. Um, and certainly the both the US and the European uh, Neuroendocrine Tumor Societies um, recommend that CARA 67 proliferation index is done. And what's um, the what's the cutoff there? Um, I'm used to new small cells being 90, 100%. Um, what, what numbers are you looking at for, for carcinoids and atypical carcinoids? Yeah, so I think this is part of the reason why it hasn't been incorporated because, say, for example, for GI neuroendocrine tumors, it's very well established that grade one is less than 2% CARA 67, grade two is 2 to 20%, and anything over 20% is grade three. So that distinction and those gradings that we have for um, GI neuroendocrine tumors, um, you know, that, that hasn't really, we haven't got the same level of validation in terms of those cutoffs. So, um, you know, obviously, we may in time have that um, have have that um, uh, you know done to a much higher degree that it is actually incorporated within um, the kind of classification systems. I think the other thing to say is probably that um, genomically they're very distinct. Um, so typical and atypical carcinoids are um, associated with. Um, uh, genes which are actually quite similar to the GI neuroendocrine tumors, such as you know genes such as MEN1, chromatin remodeling genes. Whereas obviously we know large cell and small cell is associated with loss of TP53. So, so do you um, see them as? I, I never realised that. So do you see them actually as? We we see them as a, we talked about a spectrum. Do you not see them as a spectrum? Do you actually see that they're two distinct pathological processes? I, I think they so. I think it's important to look at them as a spectrum. All neuroendocrine, you know, if we take all of neuroendocrine cancer as a whole, then, you know, we always regard it as a spectrum. And within that spectrum, there are clear entities, you know, and, you know, differentiation is often the, the, the biggest way that we can kind of divide these up, broadly speaking, into well and poorly differentiated. And as I said, you know, clearly you can see distinct clinical, pathological and genomic differences between well-differentiated lung tumours versus poorly differentiated ones. Um, having said all of that, you know, often you, there are many cases that don't fit into these kind of clear criteria and into these kind of clear categories. So, for example, um, there is this category of um, large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma, but with 
more morphologic features of a carcinoid tumor. And in the net world, we've kind of called these supracarcinoids. Um, so there are these kind of overlap entities that I think that concept of, of a spectrum becomes quite important. Um, also important to say that from the typical carcinoids generally are much more common than the atypical carcinoids. So, so certainly if you, um, in terms of a surgical practice, you know, probably you'll see eight to 10 times more typical carcinoids versus atypical carcinoids. Whereas when it comes to patients with more advanced disease, metastatic disease, it's more kind of similar in terms of numbers. So, yeah. Is, 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 there, is there a range of eight? Is it a range of atypical carcinoids? Do you, do you look at them in your in your expert MDT and say this is a really nasty one? This has a higher rate of atypia, a higher K67, for example, or are exactly. they all much homogenous? No, no, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, and that's precisely where K67 becomes really helpful mm. because, you know, if you're going up to a you know with an atypical morphologically it might be an atypical carcinoid, but with a very high K67, then you know that that clearly has got a more aggressive phenotype, um, and that's likely then to be represented in terms of the clinical picture, the functional imaging picture, and then obviously how you think about treating that patient. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going to ask about functional and non-functional nets. Um, I find this unbelievably confusing. I'm a simple man. Um, when, when, when should we check? Um, how should we check? Um, I remember urinary 5 HIAAs. I remember blood tests. I tend to forget them. And then when I come to clinic, I embarrass. I can't remember what I'm doing. Um, enlighten me. Educate me. Okay, so the first thing is don't panic. That's the main right, message. Because actually... Uh, functional lung nets associated with typical and atypical carcinoids are actually very rare. So certainly less than seven to, you know, seven percent or so, I think, is the quoted figure that actually have a functional syndrome related to the neuroendocrine tumour. So those. Is that, uh, sorry, is that is that yeah. all um, all, all uh, carcinoids or, or is, is that uh, uh, what about pulmonary? Yeah. How many yeah, no, no. So that that's specifically for lung rare, carcinoids. Yeah. Oh, for that's lung. Specifically okay. for lung carcinoids. Yeah. So the 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 two which are probably the most common are um, carcinoid syndrome, which is obviously related to hormonal hypersecretion um, due to things like serotonin, and often is associated with you know large volume liver metastases, um, and you get the classic carcinoid syndrome of um, you know diarrhea, flushing. Uh, sometimes wheezing. Uh, the other common syndrome uh, is Cushing's, uh, which can be related to ectopic ACTH secretion. Um, so I think if you've got, uh, they're usually pretty obvious clinically. So, you know, sometimes I get queries about somebody who's had a lung net who has got a bit of diarrhea. That's very, very unlikely to be related to a, um, you know, a functional net syndrome. Whereas you know, so they're usually pretty obvious clinically in terms of, as I said, real obvious carcinoid syndrome or Cushing syndrome. So I think if you have a patient who has, um, you know, clinical evidence of one of those types of syndromes, then yes, Tom, your urine 5-HIA should be done. Um, clearly, if it's somebody who you might suspect to have Cushing's and you need to do their serum cortisol, their ACTH, and, and then get on the phone to your uh, local friendly um, endocrinologist who can help you to to, to manage that. You'd uh, be doing that in, in the presence of symptoms as opposed to routinely doing it on everyone? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Chromogranin A? 
a... Oh, yes. Yeah, so so chromogranine A is a, is a serum biomarker that is used in in nets, but the, the actual utility of it is pretty limited. Um, I think if you've got diagnostic uncertainty around a potential net, it can help. Uh, but in terms of routine monitoring and so on, it's it's uh, personally I think it's a relatively limited value. Okay. Um, so um, yeah, as I said, I think for diagnostic purposes it can sometimes be helpful. Um, but you, you know, in terms of reliability of it as a as a kind of tumor marker, in the same way that we use, you know, PSA for prostate cancer or CA one two five like ovarian cancer is is really not uh, you know it's not as reliable. And if you've got a functional versus a non-functional net, apart from the fact they may have, as you say, carcinoid syndrome, apart from symptoms, does it tell you anything about the biology of the cancer and does it fundamentally change your treatment options? So I think patients with significant hormonal secretion, there's some evidence to suggest that, for example, the Cushing's group do worse. Um, and it potentially can impact on your treatment options. Uh, maybe we'll come on to that a little bit later, but yeah. you know, I, I, so it is important for you and it is really important for you to be able to diagnose it when it's, when it's there, even yeah. though it's relatively uncommon. And clearly, so messages look, look for symptoms first and event uh, and investigate accordingly, as opposed to send off very complicated tests, which you don't understand Correct. in everyone that you that, come across. That's, that's yeah. the main message. And obviously from a patient perspective, they, these types of syndrome can be, incredibly debilitating and really impact on quality of life so it is important that you diagnose it when it is there and i'm going to ask a, a what probably seems like a really basic question so with those types of symptoms would the patients always have metastasis or uh, can they can they get that type of syndrome just if they have an isolated lesion yeah so isolated lesions tend to be more associated with, for example, the Cushing's ectopic ACTH secretion. So that's a kind of common uh, presentation. But in terms of full-blown carcinoid syndrome, then it's usually associated with presence of significant large volume, you know, liver metastases. Yeah, and I'm so glad you asked that because I think exactly the same question. <laughs> I'm really glad you yeah, asked so, it for me. <laughs> so it, it, just for the simple respiratory physicians, if if we get someone in clinic who's got that that full bone carcinoid syndrome, then we need to make sure we're checking their liver, and that's where we start getting worried. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So then. We've talked about uh, functioning versus non-functioning and kind of uh, blood and urine tests. What about imaging? So the thing mm. we always seem to get really het up in MDT is about which type of PET scan we should be doing. Yeah. And should we be doing, doing both of them? Should, should they all have an FTG and a dotatate? And like, and what is the role of, the, of a dotatate? And when should we go for it? Um, it always seems to cause an immense amount of arguments and it's tricky in current kind of climates where patients do sometimes wait for PET scans, hopefully not too long, but if you're ordering yeah. a series of tests then it can take longer. Yeah. So I think in the context of somebody who's presenting with um, advanced disease, it's absolutely critical to get a, a gallium dotatate PET. So um, just the principle behind this is obviously that well-differentiated nets such as, you know, lung carcinoids um, have an overexpression of somatostatin receptors. Uh, so a gallium um, 68 dotatate PET is basically a radiopharmaceutical tracer, which is used to measure somatostatin receptor uh, density. Um, and we know that the um, 
sensitivity and resolution is is very high compared to historical imaging that we used to use for this type of neuroendocrine tumor with you know what were called optria scans optriotide scans which used a kind of spect um and usually a kind of indium optriotide uh label so um it's for optimal staging it's absolutely critical so the question around when you should use when you should consider an FDG pet, I think is really also important. Obviously, we've talked about this kind of spectrum of, of, of neuroendocrine cancers. So it's important to kind of understand that, you know, those patients with most well-differentiated disease, such as the typical carcinoids, are likely to have the highest um, somatostatin receptor expression and therefore the most avidity on a gallium dotatate pet. And conversely, with an FDG pet, are likely to have uh, the least amount of uptake. So obviously, if you go from a typical to an atypical, and again, talking about the spectrum and where the kind of care 67 is, um, you will often have patients perhaps at the lower end of a uh, proliferation index or the less aggressive atypical carcinoids who have more uptake on a dotatate pet, um, uh, might be dotatate uh, positive versus FDG negative. Whereas at the other end, the Kind of scenario that Tom mentioned of a much higher KR67 getting more towards the kind of large cell end of the spectrum, who potentially will have very little, if any, dotadate uh, avidity, but will have very high FDG PET expression. And that's really important from a prognostic perspective, and it's really important from a therapeutic perspective. So certainly, I would always um, consider you know, an FDG pet absolutely for uh, patients with an atypical carcinoid as well. Um, just because, as I said, it really adds extra value to the dotatate pet in terms of that prognostication and how you potentially manage that patient. And um, I guess the uh, thing from our point of view as the people are kind of working the patients up is that we always feel that these these investigations obviously are best done before they have a resection because mm -hmm. you don't know afterwards <laughs> if it was day-to-day -day avid or not. Yeah. So, uh, and my understanding is that that's the best way, obviously, to try and get the imaging in first. So then, post-op, uh, we've got we you know which which of our our scans will be the most useful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think if if you uh if you've made a diagnosis preoperatively of a uh, of a carcinoid through histology and the patient is going for an operation then absolutely they should have a they should definitely have a dotatate pet to understand what their uh what their uh, somatostatin receptor expression is um preoperatively because that can sometimes help in terms of follow-up follow-up post-operatively um although you know the uh, kind of guidelines around how you should do surveillance including functional imaging is is quite controversial and there's no real consensus on that so right, and, we're, and we're gonna we've got another exciting podcast coming yeah, where we're yeah. going to talk about early stage um neuroendocrine tumors so we're not going to spoil the show because that would be that would be terrible no, it's kind um, of a thorny subject too so, yeah, so it, it, is, kind of, yeah. it kind of sounds like they all need dotatates because if you think it's going to be a, a uh, you know a typical then we expect that to have you know quite high uptake but you're also saying you know if there's clear potential um metastatic disease as well then then they should yeah. be having having a dotatate yeah uh, unequivocally yes uh it's because of you know the treatment options which you know i think we're going to come on to um um so things like somatostatin analogs that are you know effective treatments that we give for uh routinely for other 
types of neuroendocrine tumors such as GI neuroendocrine tumors that have rel relatively good side effect profile and so on. And, and so, you know, it's one of the um, systemic therapies that we have in our kind of therapeutic. Which is a, a, a perfect segue in, into the next question. Perfect. Thank you, Debs. That's marvellous. So <laughs> let's move on to, because we're functioning, sort of focusing mainly on advanced disease. So advanced neuroendocrine tumours. And just to say to the audience, we are deliberately ignoring small cell and large cell neuroendocrine tumours because that's such a massive se separate subject. So advanced disease, um, which are positive on dotatate, let's say, um, what are the treatment options and how does that vary according to how, how positive the, the dose state is? And I guess in advance, we're talking here widely metastatic and there are no radical surgical options available. So the systemic yeah. treatments. So um, I think, you know, like any other patient with advanced cancer that you, that you see, obviously you have to assess um, you know, what the performance status of the patient is, what the fitness is, what the comorbidity is, what the explore, what the wishes of the patient and their family is. Um, uh, but I think that if you take, as you say, the, you know, somebody who has a um, metastatic, um, say typical carcinoid with quite extensive disease, which might be, for example, liver and bone, um, usually we would recommend that they commence some type of systemic therapy um, for patients who are, you know, who have relatively, let's say, low volume metastatic disease or relatively asymptomatic and are perhaps more on the typical end of the spectrum. Uh, a somatostatin analog is a completely reasonable first choice. So the data around somatostatin analogs for lung nets is, um, as with everything in lung nets is pretty minimal. Uh, there was a trial called the SPINET trial, which um, actually had to stop recruitment um, uh, early just because it was had had real difficulties in terms of recruiting. But in essence, the what that study was a, a randomized double uh, blinded phase three trial for patients with um, atypical or typical um, advanced lung nets and they were randomized to either land and the, 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 these are all positive on dotate or is it all just positive regardless? on dotate okay. all positive it's on dotate. any positivity any positivity on the dotate okay and um those patients were randomized to either lanreotide or placebo primary endpoint was medium progression free survival progression free survival in the lanreotide arm was about 16 17 months in the placebo arm it was 13 months um uh so uh, you know and but the the data for the typical seems to be better as you would anticipate because they're a better, better prognostic group so the median pfs in that group was about 22 months versus about 14 months in the atypical group so given that data you know that's pretty um you know in terms of pretty suitable uh, for for many patients with uh, first line therapy uh, to consider a somatostatin analog um You've then got consideration around um, uh, molecularly targeted therapy. And the only kind of level one evidence that we actually have is for the use of Everolimus, which is uh, the mTOR inhibitor. So there was a, a trial called Radiant 4, which, again, 
uh, was a, a randomized placebo control trial uh, for patients with either typical or atypical advanced uh, lung carcinoid. Um, some of those patients had had a prior somatostatin analog, some had had prior chemotherapy, which we'll come on to in a second. Uh, but the overall, uh, the median progression-free survival in the Everolimus cohort was about nine months versus three months in placebo. So in some patients who have, for example, more advanced disease, higher bulk of disease, perhaps an atypical uh, histology, you might commence a somatostatin analog as well as Everolimus at the same time. Um, so... In some patients, as I said, you might sequence it. So you give the somatostatin analog first um, and then at a point of progression, then consider Everolimus. Um, I mentioned about chemo. Um, so, you know, chemotherapy for lung nets, again, real lack of evidence, you know, mainly retrospective series. Yep. A whole range of different regimens have been uh, looked at. Lots of old school drugs. Lots of old school drugs. So, mm. you know, platinum atopicide, obviously based on small cell data. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, if, us, you know, net physicians who treat mainly GI nets, we tend to prefer giving temozolomide uh, plus or minus capecitabine. Um, there's some data for use of oxaliplatin based regimens um, as a second line, but all of these are kind of associated with response rates of about. 15 to 25% okay, quite low, survival of six to 12 months. Um, the um, ESMO, European Society of Medical Oncology guidelines actually uh, recommend temozolomide based regimen as your first regimen, primarily just for convenience because it's oral and because of um, perhaps less toxicity than the, you know, intravenous, you know, platinum based regimens. So we tend to reserve the, chemotherapy regimens for those patients who have who present with very extensive metastatic mm. disease, often symptomatic, uh, who don't have significant expression of somatostatin receptors uh, on the dotatate PET, and where you need to try and get a response perhaps quicker, uh, because, you know, chances of response in terms of significant shrinkage with Everolimus or Lanreotide is relatively small, probably under 10%. And what about PRRT? He said, not knowing what he's talking about. Um, I've heard it mentioned a few times. My clinical yeah. oncology colleagues are much more expert than me. Do you use it? When do you use it? What is it? Okay. So PRRT or peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. Um, so the, 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 the kind of main treatment that we use is uh, lutetium-177, which in essence is just a, a radio-labeled somatostatin analog. Um, so Again, go referring to my kind of GI net uh, practice, uh, there was a trial which was performed called the NETA-1 trial, which uh, was done in patients with small bowel nets, advanced small bowel nets, uh, where lutetium was compared to patients with, uh, given uh, high-dose somatostatin analogs. And it really was a, a, a very positive study with an improvement in median progression-free survival of over two years compared to somatostatin analogs. Uh, again, we don't have the same level of data for lung. And having said that, again, there's been small, small series which have shown that the data looks promising. Um, probably, you know, you're talking about uh, median progression-free survival of 18 to 24 months. Response rates probably about 15 to 20 percent. Um, and um, the problem that we have is that because of the lack of evidence compared to the, the GI nets, um, it's not routinely funded. So um, 
for example, in the UK, there is no routine uh, funding through the Cancer Drugs Fund for lung nets who have uh, who you're considering for PRRT. Having said that, there are certain centres that are able to access it through special programmes, including at Guys. So I think it's always worth considering and exploring it in patients who have progressed on, you know, somatostatin analog, everolimus, um, perhaps chemo as a you know, as a potential option. Got you. And so just breaking that down slightly more simply mm. for the, the simple respiratory physician. So for the, the non-functioning neuroendocrine uh, uh, spectrum, are those guys going kind of straight to chemo? Is there, or is there any other options for them? So so what what I've talked about is is the yeah. is is both the kind of non-functioning yeah. and the functioning really. I mean, the, the only differences in terms of you know functional nets really are those patients who have significant carcinoid syndrome is really those patients need a you know um, uh, you know potentially other things considered so such as you know if they have large volume liver metastases we might consider embolizing the liver metastases that often can reduce carcinoid syndrome uh, you need to screen them for things like carcinoid heart disease which often is can can happen in patients with significant uh, syndrome but broadly speaking in terms of how you manage them from an advanced disease perspective as i said if if the dotatate pet is positive then go down the route of a somatostatin analog as i said in some patients you might give everolimus alongside the somatostatin analog um, chemotherapy we tend to reserve for patients who have progressed on a somatostatin analog or everolimus or in patients who are very symptomatic at the outset and have good performance status so we're, we're coming to the end of our of our allocated time so i'm just gonna ask a couple of more questions um medical oncologists we absolutely love molecular profiling it's the high point of our of our day um should i be molecular targeted uh, profiling my patients i remember you and i um, Debs is walking down the street in Paris at Esme recently. You told me about a patient of yours with a thing had an alk fusion. Um, made me realise maybe I should be profiling these guys. Yeah, so I, I wish I could um, give you a, a, a better tale of uh, which is similar to what you see in non-small cell lung cancer. But the problem that we have for uh, well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors, be it lung or gastrointestinal tract, is that unfortunately there's a lack of uh, real actionable driver mutations or fusions. Um, you know, there are case reports of out rearrangements. And I mentioned to you, you know, a particular patient of mine who we've been able to get onto um, ALK uh, therapy because of a, a rearrangement. Uh, but I think they're relatively rare and uncommon. I mean, I think that it's reasonable once you know you've got a patient with advanced disease to test them for NTRAC, which is obviously routinely uh, available uh, NTRAC testing is routinely available through your glh and that would always pick up something like uh, you know an alk rearrangement just in case so i think yeah they're rare but i think it's important that we yep. we identify them you know because of the potential you know therapeutic options of uh, you know available and it's probably a little bit tricky. We've already talked uh, um, about the different different lines of treatment. Prognosis-wise for patients, um, uh, I don't, I'm sure there isn't a simple answer, really. Um, it, does it help 
based on the the typical versus atypical or are we yeah. more looking at kind of uh, how extensive their disease is really yeah so definitely atypicals have a much uh, worse prognosis um so you're talking about uh, you know for patients with um you know uh, say stage 4 uh, you know typical carcinoids you know uh, you know five year overall survival is probably in the region of about um uh, you know 60% whereas for for patients with atypical carcinoids it's probably in the region of about 20 to 30%. So the the atypical group absolutely has a unfortunately a much worse prognosis. Um obviously patients at the other end uh, you know who obviously are able to have a have a, a curative lung resection um you know the kind of 10 year uh, you know disease um specific survival for a lung carcinoid is is you know over 90 percent uh but even you know for stage one disease um you know uh, again for atypicals it tends to drop off a bit perhaps, perhaps to about 80 percent um so you know you can obviously the the kind of classification system that we have for for lung carcinoids you can clearly see the difference between the typical and atypical across all stages one to four and uh, as you said, those those early stage patients, we're, we're having a different podcast about that. And obviously they have quite a good pro uh, prognosis. But um, in your experience, is there a higher risk of recurrence for the earlier stage uh, patients between the two different between the different subtypes? Um, yeah. So th so the atypical carcinoids, again, have a much higher risk of recurrence um, and can often have you know, quite late recurrence as well. So, you know, these patients often are, should be surveyed for long periods of time, even beyond what you would normally regard as normal for, you know, in terms of five to 10 year follow-up. Um, so uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the the atypicals again, as I said, you know, have much higher risk of, uh, of recurrent disease and, uh, you know, should have a kind of slightly more intensive kind of follow-up program in terms of surveillance related to those uh, given that particular risk. And the last question I think we're going to ask you is, um, when do we when do we refer to you, Debs? Um, obviously, you don't want to have every single typical and atypical carcinoid that's been resected. In the metastatic setting, yeah. do you think that all patients with a metastatic uh, carcinoid should be referred up to a specialist centre? And um, if not, which one should and which one shouldn't, broadly speaking? Yeah, so, I mean, I think obviously... Clearly, you know, there are some cases which are more straightforward. I, you know, I I think that the more complex cases, and perhaps we've discussed some of those, you know, such as, for example, patients with uh, complex functioning syndromes like carcinoid syndrome or Cushing's in the metastatic setting, you know, certainly I think those patients should be referred to, you know, your, you know, local uh, net center of excellence. Um, I think that... Um, again, if you're um, unsure about whether a patient might be uh, suitable for consideration of lutetium, even with kind of funding restraints and, um, you know, that we currently have, then again, I think those patients is always worth a discussion. Um, and obviously, you know, we don't have um, a huge number of trials for lung nets, but, you know, we should always think about you know, um, you know, what trials are potentially open and available. And so it's always worth um, speaking to your, again, to your local net centre to in the kind of advanced disease setting to, to, to think about trials for suitable patients. 
Debs, thank you very much. I think that um, wraps it up. Um, it's just for me to say thank you very much, uh, Deb Sashaka, for joining us uh, for our first new format uh, podcast. We're very grateful uh, for your time. Um, and with that, uh, we'll call today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on BTOG, including educational events and how to join, of course, you can visit www.btog.org. Just to remind you, we would love to hear your comments, thoughts, questions about things we discussed. And for the really interesting ones, we'll even discuss them in our next uh, podcast. You can contact us on info at btog.org or on Twitter at btog.org. Thank you very much.